Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Conversations about climate disruption are often grounded in scientific facts and figures. News articles and even Climate One radio shows are littered with kilowatt hours, carbon dioxide levels, and other complicated terms. I'm Greg Dalton. On today's show, we'll explore the emotional side of the journey to build a cleaner economy and protect the climate that supports it. Fossil fuels are deeply embedded in everything we do and make every day. Changing our economy, our cars, buildings, and food systems requires staying power. Like going on a diet or exercise routine, it's easy to get discouraged along the way and slack off or just give up. Underneath all the hardware and geeky terms, building a sustainable economy is a human and emotional endeavor. Academic research and online stories are capturing this dimension and coining terms such as climate hope, climate depression, climate hysteria, climate anxiety, identity, and empowerment. This hour, we'll discuss the psychological dimensions of healing the climate, which presents the biggest business and technological opportunities of the century. We'll include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us today three guests. Joan Blades is co-founder of livingroomconversations.org, a values-based dialogue between liberals and conservatives, liberals and conservatives who actually talk to each other. She also co-founded Moms Rising and the political advocacy group moveon.org. Joshua Friedman is the CEO of Six Seconds, a nonprofit dedicated to emotional intelligence. He's a consultant to large corporations and author of the book Inside Change at the Heart of Leadership. Renee Lertzman is a climate strategist and advisor to public and private sector organizations. She's the author of the academic book, Environmental Melancholia, Psychoanalytic Dimensions of Engagement. Please welcome them to Climate One. Joan Blades, let's begin with you. Did you have a particular moment where there was a climate epiphany or was it a gradual awakening where you came to realize that climate is something you ought to think about? I don't remember climate epiphany about climate change. I remember gathering concern. And in 2005, I was 
part of a group called Reuniting America, bringing leaders on the right and left together to talk. And I wanted to understand why there seemed to be this growing difference in how people perceive the issue of climate. And I had the opportunity at that point to talk with leadership of the Christian Coalition and Grover Norquist. And you know, these people, it wasn't a, such a firm boundary then. And I had some great conversations. Five years later, I realized that I could not have that same conversation and it would not have gone the same places, and that having that human connection can make all the difference in the world And if you hear someone, if you actually... Because once I like you, and I hear you in a completely different way, and that was the inspiration for Living Room Conversations, is as that boundary about talking about climate became more impenetrable, that as human beings we needed to make that human connection and then things would become possible. And we'll get into that. So it sounds like you're saying it's more difficult to talk about climate now, even though there's more evidence and it's more in the headlines, than it was 10 years ago. Is that right? I believe that is the case, yes. Renee Lertzman, how about you? Was it a moment in time or a gradual process? Um, I would also say a bit of both. Um, I think that for me, it was my freshman year in college, um, so I was about 18, 19 years old, and I was taking environmental studies, kind of introduction to environmental studies, and that experience itself um, was quite profound, in part because I was also taking psychology courses, and so that disjuncture that I was experiencing between what I was learning about in the lecture hall was completely sort of... Um, dissociated from the whole, you know, all the conversations we were having around human psychology, why are humans the way they are, and how do we manage difficult, distressing situations, Um, that that combination led me to sort of a singular focus on um, putting this whole area sort of front and center as far as really understanding and wanting to engage with this issue through that lens um, and then I would also say there, there are subsequent experiences where I think moments that amplify things for us. So, you know, as I'm hearing people talk, I'm thinking about, you know, yes, there was that trip or that, that direct experience. Um, and I think having that visceral experience is really, um, it's really key for a lot of people. Um, I'm just curious, do you, do you have a story or how you got into this? Um. <laughs> In 2006, uh, I was in a different position at the Commonwealth Club and I interviewed uh, Elizabeth Colbert, who wrote a book, Field Notes from a a Catastrophe. Mm -hmm. It was the first climate book that I ever read. And uh, it was quite awakening. And afterwards, we went out to dinner with some people and and talked to her. Uh, She's a writer for The New Yorker and later wrote The Sixth Extinction. A year later, I had a chance to go on a Commonwealth Club trip to the Arctic and with some uh, scientists from Cal and the Smithsonian and elsewhere, and, and Tom Brokaw from NBC News, Forrest Sawyer from ABC News, and flew around in helicopters and saw polar bears and walked on the tundra and was steeped daily in the Arctic, wearing my Hawaiian shirt uh, in the Arctic in 2007. Uh, it was actually up there when Al Gore did that uh, you know, Earth uh, 070707 concert and came back and said, wow, this is really interesting and this is really scary. I put together a video, uh, a slideshow, and remember tears streaming down my face, like putting that together, what I had seen. 
And I shared this story many times, but recently, uh, for the first time in a recorded sense, and after some people heard it, uh, got trolled on Twitter and you know attacked for that, mm-hmm. which uh, may relate to some things we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Joan Blades, I want to pick up on what you talked about, the difficulty for having conversations. They become polarized, and some people... Uh, who care about climate self-censor and, and silence themselves because they don't want to be, oh, that person who's talking about the end of the world or that, right? Or they you know, want to pick up where you mentioned there in terms of the difficulty because either the polarization or that climate has become like sex and you don't talk about it in polite conversation. Well, I mean, what we've seen modeled in the media and with leadership too often is this very disrespectful way of engaging with each other. And I have friends that say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do a living room conversation. And a living room conversation is just two people with different viewpoints. Each invite two other people, their friends, and we're more and more homogenous. So that's generally three and three to have a conversation about a given topic. And in the case of climate, I actually say, well, someone that doesn't believe in climate change isn't going to come to a conversation about climate. So they'll have a conversation about energy. And the lovely thing about that is when you have a conversation about energy, you find you have a lot of shared values. You agree that efficiency is a good thing, renewables are a good thing. And as you get to care about each other, even if some of the people in the room don't personally believe in climate yet because we are living ever more in separate narratives. I read my conservative friends' uh, literature they send me and I go, oh, I see why they don't think climate change is such a big deal. If I was reading this on a regular basis, I would too. And I have conservative friends that you know, care more because they care about me. So that relationship piece is just essential. And the living room conversations offer a structure that allows for that kind of trust and intimacy to start to have a relationship, to start to find your common ground. And then I have a great deal of faith that when we discover, you know, these people with very different ideas are actually kind, caring, intelligent. And on both sides, we have some misimpressions there then a great deal more becomes possible. And when someone is a climate skeptic or denier, do you roll your... What happens when you roll your eyes or, or say, like, oh, you idiot? Well, when people want to talk about climate and um, they want to tell someone about it that doesn't believe, if you roll your eyes, you've lost them. And I have conservative friends that have told me stories about, you know, I won't talk to my you know, daughter-in-law about climate because you know, she you know, dismisses me. You know, she, he feels deeply disrespected by that process. So you know, the starting place, that's why this is a good conversation, the starting place is that emotional connection. And once you have that connection, then many things become possible. Josh Friedman, how do you talk to people who have very different views or, or um, climate, people who have, you have different values, different sets of views on, on energy, climate, et cetera? Careful, carefully. <laughs> um, 
I have a, a family member who's very conservative. And when this topic of uh, tonight's conversation came up, I was thinking about the interactions with him and how I have, like sex and politics, kind of sometimes retreated from, you know, it's Thanksgiving and like, oh, don't bring that up. But I feel <laughs> it's so important um, and I also am kind of interested in his perspective. And my solution is similar to Jones. My solution has been to make it personal. And not, I mean, I, I'm not a climate scientist. And um, so it's not for me, it's not a factual, like I don't have all these facts at my disposal. But uh, last time I saw him, I said, wow, I just drove down through the Central Valley and it was so dry. I've never seen it like that. It really scared me. And so being able to speak from my own experience, I'm not uh, telling him he's wrong. I'm just talking about what I'm seeing and feeling. And I, I have no idea if that does anything to change his perspective. But I, I think it's a way for me to assert myself without moving into polarizing conversation. Renee Lertzman, I feel sometimes that even when talking to people who accept climate reality as here and now that they still don't want to talk about it socially, that they will talk about it for 30 seconds and then change the subject because mm -hmm. maybe because I talk about it like it's a downer, maybe mm -hmm. I bring it up the wrong way, mm -hmm. or they're still like, oh, okay, let's talk about something lighter, more, hey, how about the Super Bowl, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that a real concern? What's going on psychologically there? These are not people who, these are people who accept it, but still don't want to hold it too closely or too long. Right, yeah, I think that... Um it, it comes back to what is our experience and, um, and Josh's story about how getting in touch with our experience is disarming. But it also, for many of us, can be um, very difficult and challenging to know what to do with it and how to manage it. So with regards to how we're uncomfortable or reticent or unsure about how to relate with this topic... Um, in my experience, it really comes down to anxiety and the kinds of anxieties that this topic can bring up for us and not even knowing at a conscious level that that's what's happening. And so as social beings, we're constantly sort of calibrating and monitoring with one another what's acceptable or not to, to venture into. And when we're not getting the cues from others that it's actually you know, not okay, that we may make someone else uncomfortable or feel threatened, um, we tend to sort of shut down. And that's why one of the um, developments that I'm really excited about is this, this notion of conversation and how do we sort of what I would call break the taboo about talking about this in a way that's not touchy-feely, it's not particularly emotional, it's just very normal and it's very naturalized. So what does it mean in our workplaces or in our relationships to just say, hey, you know, I feel I just uh, saw something, I, I'm really bummed out about this program I saw or whatever, but just to kind of, what we're always wanting to do is like calm the nervous system down so that we can actually have a conversation and access what we feel and think about this, because it sort of goes back to this notion that anxiety kind of makes us dumb and shut down. And so if we think about how can we creatively find ways to disarm, so sharing personal experiences, so that it's not about, and what are you doing about this? I think there's a real paradox here, because 
I think a lot of us feel this growing sense of urgency and, you know, we're reaching this tipping point or there's, uh, and the notion that we can at the same time feel urgent and say, you know what, I can't just sit back and wait while at the same time, you know, taking this kind of disarmed stance and like treating this as a neutral topic, it's not a neutral topic. You know, and when we start looking at the choices that we're making and the seriousness of those choices, I think it's really hard to cope with. I think it's really overwhelming. And I don't know about other people, but I'm just overwhelmed with normal life. You know, and like, mm-hmm. then you want to add on top of it, like, yeah. oh, is this purchase going to contribute to the destruction of the planet? It just becomes really hard to make it through the day. Mm-hmm. So I think there's just a, like a coping mechanism for this just overwhelmed sense mm-hmm. is to just push it aside. Right. And related to the is that normal? Is, and is it pushing it aside, does it get bigger? Or is that just a normal coping mechanism? Like we don't go around saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, right? You put it aside. Well, we're designed to... Uh, manage our distress precisely in that way by putting aside and sort of dis- what's called disavowing, where you sort of you're not denying something, but you're choosing to not be in that experience. Yeah, it's a completely natural, and normal response. Where where I'm interested in is how do we interrupt that or how do we navigate that? And my, you know, it makes me wonder about what happens when we acknowledge openly. Yeah, I get that this is overwhelming. I imagine that you're probably feeling X, Y, and Z, that that in itself, that's what good therapists do. They acknowledge, they say, yeah, this is hard, and here's what we're going to do, or here, you know, here's some options. But the, the power of acknowledgement, um, I think, is an area that, that is calling for more investigation in how we communicate and how we engage with people. Just say, yeah, Josh, I know, it's really overwhelming, isn't it? It kind of sucks. Like, who wants to even think about this? This is a drag. And that itself can, can be quite liberating. It's like, yeah, you're right. Uh, I believe in the power of Cabernet Sauvignon myself. But um, <laughs> uh, Joan Blades, uh, you talk about some of your liberal friends are hysterical about climate, and your conservative friends help calm you down. Tell us how that works. Well... I think we're talking about how there can be a sense of panic when you mm-hmm. see the world as you know it, you know, heading in a direction towards not surviving. Uh, but we are deeply affected by our community, and my community now includes conservatives. And there's a lot of variety among my conservative community. I have techno-optimist friends that really think that our creativity and technology uh, and business doing business well is going to solve this problem. And, you know, had a really wonderful expert conversation in November with Rod Richardson and experts about a supply-side tax incentive, you know, reduce taxes on clean energy investments. And think of the billions of dollars that would be invested in. And I'm listening and going, that's really interesting. You know, would progressives be interested in a supply-side solution to climate? Then there are my friends that are more on the face side and really are not persuaded that climate is 
the problem we think it is. In fact, my uh, partner friend Jacob sees how this climate vision is really quite analogous to the end days religious perspective. Climate rapture. Yeah, mm-hmm. rapture, end days. There's, there's a real parallel there, and he finds that fascinating. I, and, I just, going back to the, like, this sort of techno-optimist perspective, I, I so like that. It's so appealing to me. And yet my first reaction to it is that is just not, it's just wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. And so what's funny to me is that, I mean, last time I was here with you, Greg, I was the one saying, no, we have to stand on the same side of this issue. We need to not polarize. We need to, but on the other side, I'm thinking we have to also be realistic and we, we do maybe need some, we need some emotional intensity here, uh, <laughs> At the same time that we're trying to find find common ground, but we need, you know... Well, I'll respond to your polarized issue. Is, and my position about living room conversations is on some level, I don't care what right and left choose to talk about. I think we have to be in right relationship with each other if we're going to solve the climate problem when we get there. Because if we solve the climate problem try to solve it in the adversarial stance we're at, we'll get the equivalent of our healthcare system where, you know, we have succeeded in covering more people, but rather than figuring out how to get everybody covered and reduce costs, we've got progressives in a defensive crouch and, you know, conservatives so, so on the So when we attack. polarize, when we polarize, we polarize. Yeah, we need collaborative, we, to solve a problem this complex, we are going to have to be agile and collaborative and have everybody's best ideas. Mm -hmm. And the only way I know to do that is to be working with everybody in the room and listening to them and finding the place where we can create the win-win solutions. And as we come up with solutions, we're not going to say, here's the solution. It's going to have to be an ongoing development. So that good relationship is going to be absolutely essential. So that sounds like it requires a lot of patience. <laughs> it requires a lot of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it sounds like it requires Joan Blaze running for Congress. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, Can I just, I just want to say something about the techno-optimism um, that I think it's important to have a radar when that is being related to as the when, the, when there is not an openness and receptivity to having a conversation about it, that what would be considered psychologically like a manic, kind of like this is it, and getting fixated on that as the solution, um, I think that we can develop the capacity to have a radar for when that is happening, um, as opposed to being open to, yes, we need, yes, and we need this all. But I find with the with the fixation on solutions that we tend to be part of what's going on is we're crowding out any space at all, any oxygen for just simply acknowledging and saying, wow, like what is going on and, and how do I feel about this? And what are some ways I can respond to this? If it's a, if it's that kind of fixation, like where there's no space here for anything except solutions, then that can be really oppressive. And I don't think very agile. Your comment about space makes me think of Jacob's response to my mm-hmm. 
argument to him that, you know, if there's a 20% chance that we are destroying the world as we know it for our future generations, it's our responsibility to take care of it. And for him, creating the space of some uncertainty that I didn't know climate change is happening, Mm -hmm. and you better believe it too, but that it's a risk, made it possible for him to consider that risk without reacting to it. Exactly. And Jacob is your supply-side economics friend. No, he is my conservative Mormon friend. Okay. My supply-side economics friend is Rod Richardson from New York, and my another techno optimist friend is Ralph Banco from DC. You know, he sends me these wonderful articles about solutions. And I mean, Rod really believes that if we have the whole business community investing deeply in clean energy solutions, that will be a profound impact. And I, you know, I think he could be right. I wonder if so, it's, I, don't, I wonder if it's almost like in order to influence somebody who disagrees with you, you have to be willing to be wrong yourself. Like, if I'm so certain that I, I know that this is a crisis, and I'm talking to somebody who knows it's not a crisis, I'm asking them to change. Am I willing to change? And honestly, mm-hmm. like, am I willing to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe there isn't really climate change. I, <laughs> like, that, that would be hard for me to uh, really be open. It seems like we need, that's the basis of being collaborative, having innovation, is precisely that capacity to be open to being wrong, to be open to not knowing. And, and I, my sense is that's in short supply right now in the climate space, and I, I think it's related to the anxiety and the fact that the stakes are so incredibly high. So my question is, how do we create the conditions that support our capacities to be a bit more open to that uncertainty that paradoxically unlocks our are more effective creative capacities than just, we're not going there. We're only going to talk about, you know, what I call rah-rah environmentalism, like where the solutions are and there's no space. So, so I guess that, that raises the question for me, what does it look like if we have, if, if it's not about the hope and despair thing at all, just forget about that. There is a fixation on solutions because a lot of people say they're tired of the doom and gloom. They want something they can do. And a lot of individuals get overwhelmed. Yeah, I know that the the glaciers are melting, carbon's rising, severe weather. Miami is, is toast. But what can I do about it that matters? Mm-hmm. What, what can I want? My carbon doesn't matter. So therefore, what should I do? Uh, Renee Lersman, you are doing some work in Kensington, I believe, uh, trying to do something. And tell us about the, the, the emotional and other, the concrete significance of what you're trying to do. I think it's, is it composting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I moved to Kensington recently, and I discovered that um, there's no food waste to pick up. And we're surrounded by municipalities that have this. So I kind of landed in this region. And so I started putting feelers out to ask, well, what's going on here? And I found that it's a very complicated political situation. And to say the least, if anyone here (laughs) knows about Kensington. So I was kind of effectively dissuaded from engaging with this at that level. But what I found is that there's a core sort of a group of people who feel equally strongly about this, that we need to sort of join the rest of 
you know, civilization in the Bay Area and start join, doing... Join the, their peers, exactly, right? A little peer pressure. Exactly. And so, um, so the plan is to create a collaborative. So it's not that, you know, I'm necessarily leading this, but to just look at what happens when we get a small group of people and, and explore workarounds, right? And, and trusting that... I, I have infinite trust in human capacity for imagination, and so, in a way, I'm like the total optimist. I think that when we get together and we really look and focus on problem solving, it's amazing. But the important piece is, is creating a space where we can be collaborative and really bring in right, what each of us has to offer. So is it about the compost or is it about the, comp- the, the cultural norm and the conversation that you have around the compost? Because some people would say, yeah. would measure the carbon and say, oh, yeah, how much greenhouse gases did you divert, et cetera. It's about right. the metric. It's about the, the tangible concrete. Yeah. And then there's the, the cultural part about just bringing this out into the open. So which mm-hmm. one is it for Well, you? that's a really interesting question because if we, if we get overly focused on the metrics, then we will likely be paralyzed and can devalue, minimize our best efforts. So Mary Pfeiffer is actually an author and psychologist who wrote about this in a book called The Green Boat, where she chronicles her own experience of getting involved with a climate, local climate project, and then it became, you know, kind of statewide and it grew and grew. Now, she wasn't necessarily fixated on, you know, of course it's about being effective, but what she was also noticing, probably because she is a psychologist, is the effect it was having on her and everyone who's involved in this process, which is really profound and life-changing for a lot of people. So it's not to say, let's just do something because it makes us feel good. I think it's really important not to reduce it at that level and at the same time not become overly fixated on the exact impact of each and every action we take because then we will quickly sort of go down. So it's, it's, it's that both and way of, of working, and it relates entirely to scale, right? So this is an experiment for me because I've been moving around so much I haven't had the opportunity to just land and see what happens in a community. And, um, and so this relates to, you know, where we focus our energies and and so forth. Renee Lertzman is a climate strategist and advisor. Uh, we're talking about climate psychology at Climate One today. Our other guests are Joshua Friedman, CEO of Six Seconds, and Joan Blades from Living Room Conversations. I'm Greg Dalton, and it's now time for our lightning round. Um, yes or no questions to each of our, our guests. Uh, starting with Joan Blades. Joan, uh, your blood pressure drops when you talk to your conservative friends about climate change. Yes or no? Yes. Uh, Joshua Friedman, uh, <laughs> many climate-conscious people lead high-carbon lifestyles and ease their conscience with feel-good gestures such as Teslas and solar panels. True. Uh, Renee Lertzman, you sometimes lose sleep over the disrupted climate. Yes. Joan Blades, you sometimes lose sleep over the disrupted climate. Yes. Joshua Friedman, you sometimes lose sleep over the disrupted climate. Uh, no. Good answer. Um, Maybe I should. <laughs> Joan Blades, you have experienced climate joy. I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's sunny day. You there bet. You, yeah. Actually, I think I would... Yeah. Rainy, I'd consider a rainy day a great day these days. Um, Joshua Friedman, you've experienced climate ecstasy. Um, 
Sure. <laughs> it's okay if you say, I don't know what the hell that means. Yeah, that, uh, can, I, can I say that? <laughs> Joan Blades, uh, climate disruption is not your primary concern about the future. Yes or no? Um, no. It's not? No. Uh, Renee Lertzman, even the most ardent climate advocates sometimes deny the fact that climate disruption is here and now. Yes. And that is that healthy and normal? It's healthy. I, I don't know if it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Friedman, uh, corporate America is increasingly comfortable talking about f- feelings and mindfulness. Yes. Last one for Renee Lertzman. Are more Bay Area people in the gay closet or the climate closet? <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that with that the, look wow. was precious. That work was worth it right there. I guess I'd say the climate closet. Probably. All right, how they do. Let's thank them for their light, lightning round. <laughs> and now, here's a Climate One Minute. Carrie Norgard is a sociologist who studies the ways we distance ourselves from climate change. She says that there are many shades of denial even among those who understand the danger, and they find ways in their everyday life to create a sense that it's not really real. Just try bringing up climate change in a conversation and see what happens. This is one of the things that I did. There's so many different ways that people will change the subject. <laughs> and, and why is that? You know, people are very, very intelligent, and I think we're very compassionate, actually, and very concerned. Um, yet it's, it's disturbing to think about, and uh, we don't want to burden each other with it. We want to have a nice day. Maybe you're in the middle of trying to do something else. And so we have all these ways that we push it to the side and recreate a sense of reality, the reality that we've known for actually for most of many people's lives, climate change has been part of the reality of of what's happening. Um, But through this, we are actually kind of unable to imagine what is real because we're creating this safety zone. Carrie Norgard is a sociologist at the University of Oregon and the author of Living in Denial, Climate Change, Emotions, and Everyday Life. She spoke with Climate One in 2015. Now back to Greg Dalton and his guests at the Commonwealth Club. Renee Lurtzman, are there heroes and villains in the climate story? Um, gosh. Um, I, I'm, I would have to say yes and no. So I would say no in the sense that we're accustomed to thinking. You know, I feel very strongly about the fact that fundamentally, as humans, we are all doing what we believe is right and best for ourselves and our communities and the world. Um, and, uh, and I recognize that there are forces at play that are um, dangerous and not conducive to our collective biotic health and well-being. Um, I think that there's a lot of issues with the whole kind of villain hero narrative. Um, for one thing, it's disempowering because if we focus too much on the heroes and people who are out there kind of getting a lot of the limelight. Um, yes, there's, it's important to have examples. Um, but at the same time, it's very easy for us to look and say, well, I'm never going to be no impact man. I'm never going to be that person who uses this much waste a year. I'm never going to be that. 
and we discount our own kind of what, what's our path and what we have to contribute. So in a way, I would say we have to completely invert that whole binary of hero and villain to really recognize that fundamentally each of us has a powerful role to play, but that it's up to us to figure out what that is. I think there's another aspect of villains, which is often oil companies are bad, they should change, Republicans mm -hmm. should change, other people should change, government should change, and that sort of takes the weight, uh, pressure off individual action. These other actors should change. Well, it sort of avoids the fact that we're all in this together, that we're all complicit in different, different levels, but that we are imbricated, we're woven into a system where it's almost impossible to function without contributing to the problem. And guilt and shame around that is the most destructive kind of shutdown to any active engagement. So I think it's really delicate territory, actually. Joan Blades, uh, you think that during the, the struggle for marriage equality that, that some important things happened there in terms of uh, moving away from <laughs> villainization. Tell us about that. I sometimes use that as an analogy for the climate movement because there came a point, I was told, where making, calling people homophobes and basically making them the enemy was seen as not helpful and that if you could make people your friends and they might not support gay marriage, they might not oppose it in the same way. And I think with climate, you've got some of the same quality of when you make people that have a different viewpoint friends, they're going to have more interest. And you may find that as you work together on creating more renewable energy or more efficiency, as people act consistently with caring about climate, hey, I give you odds that will move that direction. Our, if I convinced someone that came from a very climate-averse <laughs> community that climate change was a huge problem and they went to back and spoke without reservation about climate, they could be shunned. And, you Cast know, out from the tribe, which means death. Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. means death. So there's a reason why, in fact, relationship comes first before the facts. Facts are really helpful after you have relationships. So this division we have, I really believe we have to be healing it on many levels. And that going slow to go fast <laughs> may be frustrating on some levels, but it's imper imperative that we do it and we start now. So that sounds like empathy, Josh. Friedman. Well, I just wanted to go back to the issue that you brought up earlier about people who presumably many of the people here do believe that there's a serious and maybe even extremely serious issue with the climate. And what are we doing? And to what degree are we willing to take responsibility for something that's really big and complicated and overwhelming and that we don't know what to do? And uh, given that complexity, I think that, you know, kind of one option is to sort of mm, do something that salves your conscience. One option is just to kind of ignore it and, you know, look for some more Cabernet Sauvignon. But another is somehow, like, I don't know what to do. Um, so why am I going to make change? And I think one of the things that's interesting to me is thinking about how does somebody who's open to this idea become 
somebody who's actually conscious and become somebody who's making more careful choices. And what I would su- suppose is that it has a lot to do with our own sense of purpose and identity. Mm. It's not something we don't change because we see, well, maybe in the future sea levels are going to rise and I don't really know. But do I, what kind of person do I want to be? And so I think if we can help ourselves think about the kind of people we want to be and what our own identity is and what our own purpose is, that becomes a catalyst for change as opposed to something outside of us. Well, one thing that's inside a lot of that people that can be a catalyst for change is becoming a parent. Uh, so, uh, Joan Blades, let's ask you, like, how suddenly being a parent, then we'll get Renee, you know, uh, being, being a parent, can that change people's connection to the future? Well, as a founder of Moms Rising, <laughs> I, yeah, I, it certainly cements your relationship to the future. And I think... I think it does change many people's perspectives. That said, I want to be sensitive to there's a lot of non-parents in the world mm-hmm. that care and love the world in a very profound way also. It adds an additional very strong bond that takes you into the future. And you know, the way I look at it, it means even when you have an intractable problem, what looks like an intractable problem, you as a parent, as a person that, you know, wants that future for my child and all children in the planet, I'm there, and I will work in whatever way I can. You don't get to give up. Not allowed. Mm-hmm. Josh Friedman, you, you opened talking about, about your, your children. You know, how uh, others, is that something you use when you work inside corporations? Do you try to appeal to the humanity of corporate executives when you're doing this work? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think fundamentally we're all people first. And it's interesting when we go and do leadership training or train in corporations about creating change, um, not necessarily environmental change, but any kind of change. What I find is that where people go first is their personal relationships. And they start thinking, well, I would like to be able to interact with my teenager better. And uh, interestingly, a lot of our corporate clients uh, feel very good about uh, providing those kinds of skills to their employees and to their leaders, because they say, well, if they're using it at home, it's going to help them at work as well. So I think think really just trying to shift our perspective to say, whether we're talking about in business or whether we're talking about in climate, we're people first. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of humanization, I think, really is a catalyst for change. Renee Lertzman, I talked with some uh, eighth grade students once about climate change. They did quite a a sophisticated study of, of, of climate and they came here to Climate One, and they presented some of their research, and they interviewed me, and they had looked into it. These are, what, 13-year-olds, something like that, and they looked at me, and I looked at them, and I, they looked at me as a person of knowledge, perhaps authority, and I couldn't tell them how bad I think it is. Mm. And I really had to hold back, and I mm-hmm. kind of choked up looking at them saying, mm-hmm. you're looking at me, and I'm not going to tell you what I really think mm-hmm. because you're 13 and I don't want to scare you. So how mm-hmm. should someone mm-hmm. talk to children mm-hmm. about their future in an honest way but also not scaring mm-hmm. them? Right, yeah. So young people, this is um, a critical question around um, young people having the cognitive 
ability to process certain kinds of information, learning about certain issues, but may not have or don't have the emotional, developmental resources to necessarily know how to process that uh, very effectively. And so that's where that um, the zone of young people like teenagers, I think, is really critical. Um, it reminds me of what Alliance for Climate Education is, is doing great work around um, supporting young people in engaging with climate change um, and treading that line around um, engaging with the sort of the facts, the information, but at but the same time... Is it bad to be scared about this? I don't think it is. I mean, I went through my crisis when I was young, That's, and it, motiv- it mobilized me. Some people say fear is debilitating, paralyzing, that hope is what motivates people. Mm-hmm. Right. I have said that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that as humans, we have incredible capacity to tolerate a huge range and that we don't need to be patronizing around the fact that we only need hope and good news and good stories. What we need and hunger for as humans is authentic connection, authenticity. Um, but I do... So your question reminds me of something that Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction writer, I heard him speak in Point Reyes last summer, and he beautifully articulated how he relates with these issues with young people around... Uh, and it might sound a little, you know, woo-woo or whatever, but, you know, he's basically saying this is your opportunity. This is, it, re- it relates to purpose, and it relates to finding our way in the world, and that this is your moment. Um, now, the flip side of that is I don't think we want to burden young people with feeling like it's on them to have to solve and sort out our mess. And that can backfire into complete nihilism and anger and rage. So again, I think it goes back to thinking about how can we communicate in a way that is grounded, um, but quite honestly, you don't know what the future is. No one does. I I think a bunch of 13-year-olds looking at an adult who's not, who's who's kind of not telling, not telling them how, how, what they really think. I think that most 13-year-olds, that is going to reduce their trust level. Mm -hmm. And I, so I think it's really tricky because I, I certainly don't want to be all doom and gloom. And, um, but I do think that authentic, like making a more authentic, making a more wholehearted conversation and being willing to be honest about our own fear and our own despair, uh, as well as our own joy, like optimism isn't denying problems. Optimism is confronting problems mm-hmm. and saying, and we're going to do everything possible to make it better. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm going to do the parent interjection here. As I've seen really different kids, and there are kids that could hear it, and it would be great, and there are kids that would hear it, and it would be really bad. It would be a total meltdown. And not knowing those kids, I think, you know, that's kind of the why you did what you did, because you don't know those kids in that way. I erred on the side of being cautious. Well, I would have been afraid, to be honest, too. You know, I mean, I think I would have been... I mean, I've talked to a lot of kids, and I'm not maybe as honest as I might like to be in, in sort of sitting here in the cool light of day when I don't have a bunch of kids asking me hard questions. I mean, I recognize that I think I probably err on the side of caution. Renee Lertzman, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote on Death and Dying, Five Stages of Grief. Many pe- Some people have said, is, is that an analog for 
dealing with the sixth extinction. The species are, you know, we're mm-hmm. losing so much of nature. Mm-hmm. Corals will be gone in the lifetime of these teenagers that we're talking about, perhaps, if, mm-hmm. if trends continue. Mm-hmm. There's this great sense of loss. Is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the, on death and dying, the five stages of grief, is that helpful or is that the wrong way to look at it? Uh, I actually think it's not particularly helpful. Um, I think that we're on the right track and being attracted to that. Um, there's a lot of issues with the five stages of grief that do not translate very well to this context, including the fact that climate change is not a death. It's not implacable. It's a process. It's, it's episodic. It's ongoing. And so when we treat it as something that you grieve as if, you know, something is died, I, I don't think that that's a very easy translation. But I do feel that absolutely we need to be bringing in, um, looking at mourning and grief work in the context of our solutions focus and our conversations. That th- I think that that's what I'm observing is there's sort of an instinctual or intuitive move in that direction already or else we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, but I, I hasten to be cautious about taking some frameworks that are developed in very different contexts and sort of applying it wholesale to this one. You know, I think the biggest issue is that a lot of people feel very isolated and are sort of in this private anguish that is heartbreaking to me. And the people I interview, they're just going through a private hell because there's no one in their lives that they can talk to about this. We're talking about the psychology of climate change at Climate One with Joan Blades, co-founder of Living Room Conversations, Joshua Friedman from Six Seconds, an emotional intelligence network, and Renee Lertzman, a climate psychologist and strategist and advisor. I'm Greg Dalton. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you for your words. I'm Gary Malazian. Uh, when I talk with my conservative friends, I ask them, if you were de- in charge of designing the planet, would you include fossil fuels in the mix? And that goes to a whole other level, and I would like your comment about that. You know what I love about Josh that? What I love about that question is the invitation to imagination. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that helps us create change is when we can imagine things differently. And we kind of get stuck in a view of the way things are. It's really hard to change. And so a question like that that kind of invites people to say, well, is there a different way to think about this? Um, that imagination seems to me like a powerful tool for us uh, for any kind of change. Let's go to our next question, the Climate One. Hi, my name is Laura. I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't expect to be thinking about this, but hearing you talk tonight, I find myself thinking about anger as one of the emotions that comes up when, when I think about climate change. And I, and I think about maybe the fact that there, there are various solutions that are already known and yet, you know, the will to implement those solutions appears to be absent or not yet well-formed or something like that. And, and so, and, and I was also thinking about when we were talking about sort of when you approach a conversation and progressives approach a conversation and there's like a level of hysteria there, that underneath that hysteria is a, is a very real kind of anger. And, and, and I can see how that could be a real barrier to conversation, certainly. But there must be ways in which anger can also be tremendously useful you know, and so I wanted to, I'd, I'd love to hear you all comment on that. Josh Friedman? So, so uh, it's interesting to me how often people describe anger and fear or jealousy as negative feelings. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's because they're hard to deal with. 
But, I mean, anger is actually this incredibly great fuel for us. It tells us there's a problem, there's something in my way. That's why we have anger, mm-hmm. right? I want to go over here and there's something in my way. And what anger does is it focuses our attention on the problem and it gives us the energy to move through that problem. I think the challenge is we misdirect the anger. And I say, you know, well, I'm angry about this thing over here, and so I'm going to yell at you because you're right here, and it's easier to yell at you than to kind of deal with this bigger problem. So I think the trick is, you know, Aristotle's challenge is to be angry in the right degree with the right person at the right time, like, and use that anger uh, where it's really, really what is in, in, in the way. And if we can use that anger to galvanize our, our attention and energy, we're more powerful. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Brad Berman, and first I'd like to thank the panelists for their candor with this very important conversation. My question is, how will Climate One and the panelists present or given these themes address people of color, of different cultures, and of socioeconomic disparities? I'll just, Um, yeah, jump in and say that the research I conducted um, for my doctoral project was based on in-depth interviews with people of um, varying socioeconomic backgrounds, primarily lower um, working class. Um, And the whole premise of the work and what came out of that project is a very strong sense that everyone, just to be a little simplistic about it, everyone cares deeply. And so um, the, the title, the term I use, the myth of apathy, is really at the heart of it it's about recognizing that each one of us has a stake and to be very careful and very mindful around how we, what kind of conclusions we draw around who is engaging and who isn't and why. So it's really coming at this from I, what I feel is needed is a deeply compassionate approach to how we are all grappling and struggling with these, with these topics and meeting people where they are. Thank you for that question. I I work all over the world, and I I work for a global organization, and um, it's fascinating to talk about emotions in all of these different cultures. And, I mean, my conclusion is quite similar. You know, it's this universal human language. uh, Emotion is a universal human language. And that what people are worried about and where people are struggling is very similar everywhere. So I think there's actually tremendous common ground Mm-hmm. Uh, when we can have more honest conversations mm-hmm. and not, you know, sort of not begin with the assumptions of difference. And then I'll just end it with living room conversations are an open source project that are up online that people have used in East Africa. And we were actually having a conversation with folks in Minnesota today that are planning a conversation on race. So it's for talking across differences of all kinds. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Ken Worthy, and I'm an environmental scholar. I have to deal with the environmental bad news with teaching my college students all the time. And it's very hard. It's not just hard for me, but it's hard for them learning um, more deeply about not only climate change, but mass extinction, uh, the fact that our bodies and landscapes are contaminated with um, toxic chemicals, And all sorts of just bad news. What do you think about the idea of, instead of focusing on the bad news when we want to talk to the public, 
try to come up with a positive vision for the future. And this is really just a shift in emphasis. It's not that we would ignore the bad news about climate change. It's more that we would focus on that as just a component of a larger picture of building a new, different kind of world that solves not only climate change, but also addresses all sorts of other environmental problems, which are so deeply interconnected just as nature and humanity are interconnected. Thank you. Josh Friedman, last time you were here, you were with Daniel Goldman, who, author of, author of environmental, uh, environmental Intelligence and, and also Ecological Intelligence and Emotional Intelligence. Uh, put it in a very positive frame, that, that hope is more empowering than, than fear. He even talked about handprints, positive impact, not, not footprints, which are a negative impact. Mm. Yeah, so when fear is really motivating, but it does motivate us to retreat sometimes. And so I think that the notion that um, if we're only caught in what's scary, it's going to be very hard for us to look at the future possibilities. So I wanted to say just thank you for your courage of doing that with the work that you do. And um, it is hard. And I think you're right that it's important to, to not only talk about what's hard, but also to talk about the possibilities, because that ultimately motivates uh, people to look for... Can I just say something? Sure. As long as it's not engaged as a defense mechanism against feeling what it means to learn about what we're looking at, I think it's we need the both and, but as long as we're not clinging to let's get in the hope and get in the positivity because we don't want to go there. I think as humans, we're far more resilient and have far more capacity to tolerate difficult and distressing experience along with the aspirational and the problem-solving part of who we are. Uh, We have to wrap up. I want to ask each of you of a positive, constructive, uh, specific action you're going to take on sustainability, climate, something else, starting with uh, Josh Friedman. So I just come back to this point about purpose and clarifying for myself who I want to be in the world, the kind of father I want to be, the kind of leader I want to be, uh, the kind of work that I want to do, and looking at using that vision of myself to motivate my daily action to be more congruent with who I want to be. Joan Blades. Um, I am going to continue uh, working as hard as I can to get more of these conversations going because it is a little bit like Sisyphus sometimes uh, convincing people that they want to talk to people with very different viewpoints. Renee Lertzman. Yeah, I'm going to continue doing my work supporting um, frontliners, people on the front lines across sectors, how to engage, communicate, um, and bring in contributions from practicing psychologists into the mix to create a new kind of climate, kind of psychological engagement approach. And helping climate scientists who suffer lots of personal attacks. Uh, I think that's a great thing. We have to end it there. I'm Greg Dalton. I've been talking about climate science, climate psychology, uh, here at Climate One with Joan Blades, co-founder of Living Room Conversations, Joshua Friedman with Six Seconds, an emotional intelligence network, and Renee Lertzman, who's a climate strategist and advisor. You can join the conversation using our Twitter handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts at climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience here in San Francisco and online. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. (laughs) 
Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.